The Transmission, Episode 74, October 25th, 2009. Get up. We got work to do. What's your problem, Jumbotron? Shut up. Red, Nick, man. Touche. Aloha from the Island Lost fans. You are tuned into the transmission. This is a podcast devoted to the show Lost on ABC. I'm Jen. And I'm Ryan. And we certainly hope you enjoyed the audio from the Hawaii International Film Festival's celebration of Lost last week. And we've got more to come. Yeah. Three master classes to be exact, which we'll put out every other week as we continue our season three rewatch. But this week, it's back to business. Up next, we'll quickly recap the next three episodes from season three of Lost. That's episode. 10, 11, 12, and we'll share our thoughts. Next, we'll hear your feedback on these episodes in You All, Everybody. We've got details on yet another prize to give away for mm-hmm. our rewatch giveaway and another song from the Others Lost Band. We'll tell you a little bit about a gig they've got coming up, and finally, we'll cover the last three weeks of Lost production here on the island in the Forward Cabin. So, you ready? Let's get lost. First up, it's Trisha Tanaka is dead. In flashback, young Hurley is working on his dad's old Camaro. His dad says having hope isn't stupid, but you have to make your own luck. After giving Hurley a candy bar, he leaves. Years later, after winning the lottery, Hurley buys a Mr. Cluck's chicken franchise. Trisha Tanaka interviews him for a puff piece, but dies when a meteor hits. Mm, Hurley gets home and tells his mother that he's cursed, but she says it was an accident. She says that she can prove that he's not cursed and reveals that... His father came back. Hurley gets mad and says he's going to get rid of all his money. His father finds out that Hurley held on to his old Camaro all that time, and he takes Hurley to a psychic. The psychic says that there's a curse, but it can be removed. If he gets naked, (laughs) Hurley offers her $10,000 to come clean, and she admits his dad put her up to it. Hurley packs up to leave for Australia, where the numbers came from, to try to beat the curse. His dad says Hurley just needs hope and that he will be there when he gets back. On the island, Hurley is visiting Libby's grave. He then goes to Charlie, who tells him that Desmond says he's going to die. Hurley says Desmond might be right and that it may be his fault because he's cursed. Suddenly, Vincent shows up carrying a human arm and Hurley chases him into the jungle and comes across an old Dharma van. Hurley goes back to camp and tells everyone that he found a car and that they can fix it, but nobody wants to help except for Jin, who kind of got roped into it. Meanwhile, Kate and Sawyer make their way back through the jungle. Kate says they could start over with a clean slate if he'd apologize, but Sawyer says he's got nothing to be sorry for. They're welcomed back into the camp, but Sawyer finds out that his stuff was taken and goes to find Hurley and Jin. Jin tries to fix the van's engine and Hurley tries to start it, but nothing happens. Hurley gets an idea and goes to get Charlie. They end up pushing the van to the edge of a huge hill, and Hurley says they'll start it while it's rolling. Charlie and Hurley get into the van, and Charlie says, victory or death. They push the van, and it rolls down the hill, and at the very last instant, it starts up. Mm -hmm. In triumph, Hurley, Charlie, Sawyer, and Jin drive around, and in a musical montage, we see Jin going back to Sun, Charlie going back to Claire, and Sawyer drinking his beer alone. 
Meanwhile, Kate tells Saeed and Locke what happened with the others and that she's going back to get Jack. Saeed and Locke catch up with her as she goes to get help, and that help is Danielle. Kate says that she wants her help to find the others' camp, and Danielle asks why she would help her. Kate tells her that a girl helped her escape and that her name was Alex. Now, on to Enter 77. In flashback, Saeed is working in a restaurant when a man tells him that he is an excellent cook and wants to hire him at twice his pay. Saeed goes to see the man and he meets his wife, Amira. She shakes his hand with a scarred wrist. She says she's sure Saeed is him and Saeed is captured. The man asks Saeed if he recognizes his wife, a woman that he tortured. Saeed admits that he was an interrogator with the Republican Guard but says he doesn't know his wife. And while she watches, her husband beats Saeed but he refuses to admit anything. The next day, the woman comes to see Saeed alone and tells her how she was once afraid to leave her apartment until she had to rescue a cat from some cruel children. She asks Saeed to admit that he tortured her and that he remembers her. Saeed does admit that he remembers her, that her face has haunted him since he left Iraq, and he says that he's sorry. She says that she forgives him and that her husband will let him go. She says everyone is capable of being cruel, but she will not be. On the island, Hurley and Jin set up a ping pong table, and Sawyer offers to play ping pong to get his stash back. Sun says that if Sawyer loses, however, he can't call anyone nicknames for a week. Sure enough, Hurley beats him soundly, but Hurley later goes to Sawyer to give him back some stuff and tells him that Kate's going to be okay. In the jungle, Saeed, Locke, Kate, and Danielle are heading north on Bering 305. Saeed is skeptical that Echo Stick has the answer, but they come across a cabin in the jungle and the man with the eye patch. Danielle says she's not interested in the man and leaves in a hurry. Saeed approaches the house and is shot, but Kate and Locke come to the rescue. The man with the eye patch says his name is Mikhail Bakunin, the last living member of the Dharma Initiative. He says that the Dharma Initiative is all dead after the purge, but that he arranged a truce and was allowed to stay. When Mikhail goes to get them some iced tea, however, Saeed tells Kate that he thinks Mikhail is an other and that he is not alone. Sure enough, they fight and tile Mikhail up. They then search the basement and find the building wired with a great big amount of C4 explosives. Saeed also finds an operations manual. Meanwhile, Locke is playing chess against a computer and eventually wins. The computer plays a video of Dr. Marvin Candle who says to enter 7-7 if the station is taken over by the hostiles. But before he can do that, Mikhail captures Locke, just as Kate and Saeed capture Mrs. Clue in the basement. Mikhail suggests a trade, but Mrs. Clue speaks Russian to Mikhail, and before they can stop them from talking, Mikhail shoots Mrs. Clue dead. As everyone prepares to leave, Danielle reappears and asks Saeed why they're keeping Mikhail alive. Saeed says that Mikhail is his prisoner and he'll decide his fate. Kate and Locke come out and Locke tells Mikhail that he beat the chess game. Suddenly the station goes kaboom. Saeed asks Locke why he destroyed their only chance of communicating with the outside world. Finally, in Par Avion, we see in flashback that Claire and her mother are in an accident. A cop visits her in the hospital to ask what happened and how fast she was driving, and Claire says it wasn't her fault. She goes to see her mom and her grumpy Aunt Lindsay is there. The doctor says that her mom could be in a coma for years, but that her medical expenses have already been taken care of. Lindsay asks by whom, but the doctor says it's confidential. Later, Claire meets her mom's new doctor, and it's Christian Shepard, Jack's dad. Lindsay shows up and tells him to leave them alone. Claire asks who he is, and he says, I'm your father, Claire. Before Christian leaves Australia, he convinces Claire to have a coffee with him. Christian explains that he and Claire's mom had a fling that he visited 
visited often, but that Lindsay hated him and her mom didn't like the fact that he had another family. Claire asks why he came back this time, and Christian says he wanted to help because Claire's mom is alive but not really living. He suggests letting her die, and Claire gets upset. Christian tells her there's a difference between hope and guilt and not to keep her mom alive for the wrong reasons. Years later, pregnant Claire goes to see her comatose mom. She tells her mom she's pregnant and that she's giving up the baby and that she's sorry for being a horrible daughter and for the fight they had just before the accident. On the island, Charlie goes to Claire and offers to seize the day with her, but Desmond shows up and tells Charlie to go hunting with him. Claire, meanwhile, hatches a plan to catch some birds with Sun and Jin. She also asks Charlie to help, but he says it could be a waste of time, and right before they catch a bird, Desmond shoots off a gun and scares it away. Claire tells Charlie she can't count on him anymore. She then confronts Desmond, who catches a bird without even trying. He explains that Charlie would have died if he'd helped her with the bird hunt. She goes back to Charlie and says they'll get through the whole situation together. She writes a letter that they attach to the bird's leg, and it flies away. Meanwhile, Locke, Saeed, Kate, Russo, and their prisoner, Mikhail, are making their way to the barracks. Locke and Saeed are bickering about the map and Echo Stick and the blown-up flame station. Mikhail explains that they had a submarine to come and go, but after an electromagnetic event, their underwater beacon stopped working so the sub couldn't come back. Kate asks why anyone would come back to the island, and Mikhail says she can't understand because she is not on the list. They reach the sonic fence. To test it, Locke throws Mikhail through, and as it fries his brain, he says, thank you. Mm. They climb over the fence to get to the barracks, but when they see Jack, he's playing football with Tom and and Thud. Thud. So that's the 10th, 11th, and 12th episode of Season 3 of Lost in 8 Minutes, and we'll take a short break to catch our breath, then come back to share our thoughts on these episodes. All right, so our season three rewatch continues with a uh, Hurley episode, a Saeed episode, and a Claire episode. What did you think about the first one? Trisha Tanaka is dead. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes. Absolutely, It's so funny. And at the time, it, it kind of seemed like filler. It kind of seemed puffy. Even though it was, you know, it was funny and it was entertaining. Piece, it didn't seem like it was really pointing at anything but now you realize it's actually really important it was a very it was a significant episode and actually someone on twitter you know said ryan how can you call this episode hamburger helper this was not the hamburger helper episode that was stranger in a strange strange land um but even when we saw this episode you know going back i mean i thought it was significant i mean look at the episodes that come on either side stranger in a strange land yes and Ender seven to seven both kind of dark moody episodes and we are kind of in a dark moody season of lost so here we have an episode that was, yeah, a puff piece, kind of a a lighter moment, but the reason why it was significant to me was we had the cage match episodes. We had those, you know, last few episodes. Here we finally got back to everyone on the beach, the rest of the cast that had been missing for much of season three. So that was significant to me. And also, yes, we didn't have much forward momentum, but the character moments, the interactions between them were just so priceless. I mean, we can't talk too much about the mythology of this episode, but we can run down a list of moments that we love, the, these characters that we love. Most of them revolve around Sawyer, Hurley, and Jin. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the 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 entire sequence basically covering um, Jin not understanding English and ending up as part of this car mission, and then Sawyer interacting with him and teaching him all the things that a woman wants to hear. They are <laughs> just really, really great comedic moments. And you know, they could be a little too much. They could be a little cheesy or um, even offensive. Possibly a little offensive, but they just played it so well. The just they, you know, Daniel Day Kim gets a 
big, you know, gold star for me from playing it straight so well when when Hurley goes, I understand, you know, yeah. <laughs> when you speak loud because that helps someone understand you. And he just has that sort of eyebrow raise just you can go back what and the freeze hell frame are you doing <laughs> exactly yeah. I, I love that you know i oh dude i suck at charades and uh, somebody's hooked on phonics i mean uh definitely some hilarious moments of of the of the this entire series and probably full of bloopers as far as that goes i just imagine what it must have been like to go to work to that day for them and and to film those scenes that must have been so much fun exactly and you know they've clearly already knew as they were writing this episode that sawyer was soon going to be losing his uh nickname gun so they yeah. just piled it in here yeah like they were going to make up for last time right. um, jumbotron mm. jimbo right right so you had that going on they had some pop culture references in this episode as well Ta- um clean slate from little house mm-hmm. uh, he says that he was um he had mono and was stuck in his trailer <laughs> and and all he could watch was little house and you don't think of Sawyer as a little kid and you don't think of him as being vulnerable. Right. So when he tells the story, you kind of imagine a different side of him. Right. And I also I mean the reference to Rocky 2 or Rocky 3, you know, movie <laughs> references, which, of course, continue in Lost and in season five, some pretty significant movie references. Right. And the flashback with Hurley. I mean, first of all, what did you think when Cheech shows up as his dad? Did that work for you? Sometimes it works and and sometimes it doesn't still, you know, even in season five, all I can see when I see him is Cheech and Chong. Mm. It's really hard for me to separate the Cheech character from the dramatic roles that that um, that he plays. So he worked he works for me in this episode later on i have some issues with it but overall i i kind of in, i well, you know it. i i think i might have had some reservations it seems like stunt casting you know we're just gonna throw in a familiar face and the problem with that is that it is distracting for exactly the reason that you explained but on the other hand the character that he ends up playing sort of this you know unaccountable sort of loose spirit that uh, just disappears on the whim and comes back because of the money i think overall cheech marin was actually the ideal father figure for Hurley yeah. for, for everything that we see that his family is like and and his mom the whole thing with his mom being happy that his father his father is back and it's been 18 years I have needs Google the, the look <laughs> on Hurley's face and just the horror and the way he no 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 <laughs> I kind of imagine that that was improvised because well, it's just so perfect. It's it's natural. I mean, it's it, it again a brilliant moment there. Jorge Garcia just allowing the horror, the sheer horror, <laughs> to creep across his face as he realizes what she's talking about. Absolutely a brilliant moment. So it's a lot of really enjoyable stuff about this episode. And you know, Roger Workman and the Dharma van, seemingly just strange props that they're thrown to you know into to interact with. Well, it turns out they come into play pretty big in the future. It's brilliant. I'm telling you, it's brilliant. They bring Roger in, not in like a lighthearted way, but at least with like a little comedic flourish. And to have Roger be such an important figure later on, I thought was genius. It is genius the way that they went back to this episode or that they had this episode or these elements in this episode to draw from and become part of this vibrant and complete world that they gave us in season five. You know, there is 
there's a skeptical part of me that wonders, did they know that that's where they were going to go or that they, you know, basically we knew we wanted to learn more about the Dharma Initiative. I certainly would have anticipated that they would have gone back in time to the Dharma Initiative. But yeah, just overall, you know, seeing these little pieces that uh, turn out to be bigger pieces definitely give this episode more weight. If we knew who Roger Workman was back then, in fact, if you had told me that that's who that was, that was what, Ben's dad? Mm -hmm. That would have blown my mind. So definitely very cool stuff that they they were able to do there. Um, But, you know, again, the characters, not so much mythology, not so much forward momentum, apart from these clues, but the characters really shined. And, you know, Charlie, poor Mm -hmm. Charlie, he's now dead man walking. They're going out of their way. It seems like they're actually sticking in the knife and twisting it because we know what fate's going to befall him. So suddenly he's so funny and charming and lovable. I just loved it. Chase the dog with the skeletal arm into the creepy jungle. You be my guest. (laughs) Exactly. It it is kind of sad um, that that this is some of his best moments as well, despite the fact that it's also some of his last moments. Yeah. Now, uh, I I did want to kind of go back. You mentioned the uh, Little House conversation. Uh-huh. What was Sawyer and Kate talking? Who did what to who I, and why is someone mad? I don't I understand. don't know. Maybe something happened in the script that they didn't film. I don't know. I don't know what Kate could possibly think Sawyer has to apologize for. The, that whole conversation really confuses me. I don't me. think necessarily anything's even missing. Clearly, there's just this awkwardness because they slept with each other and Sawyer thinks that she slept with him just because she thought he was going to die, etc. And she really has feelings for Jack. But yeah, I cannot, whatever the little you know points and, and uh, deductions that they're making in their love triangle slash situation here, I cannot understand it. And that conversation, uh, out of anything in this episode, that conversation, if you're going to talk about character development, I just could not figure out. So I guess it's a mystery to you as well. well I like that she says clean slate because Tabi LaRosa was oh, right. the name of one of her, or actually her first flashback episode. Well, not only that, but what are we talking about here between season five and season six? What is the big question that is weighing down on our heads is... Do you have the opportunity to do it over again, to start yeah. over again? To, to, so definitely, you know, sure, a small a, a, a small line that turns out to be kind of a bigger theme for the show. But, you know, and, and we'll get to this in You All, Everybody. Everybody's going to say essentially the same thing. But the musical montage, I mean, they've had some pretty bad musical montages in Lost. Some are kind of cheesy or a little overwrought, but the one that ends this episode with uh, Shambhala and then the orchestral score that Giochino comes in, definitely uh, a a, a hallmark moment for the entire series. It's one of my favorite cues of all time, actually. It's probably right behind the life or death theme Mm. for me. You know, in terms of the music. Right. I mean, we were recently at the Hawaii International Film Festival. They went through some of their favorite scenes, of course, Exodus and the music in that scene when they're on the oh, raft. Yeah, um, but yeah, chills. the life or death theme, when you hear it start playing, you just start crying. Yeah. I mean, it's that effective. But yes, so this, that Shambhala theme where, where Giacchino takes the, the melody basically from that song mm-hmm. and builds it into the score, ah, just takes my breath away. Absolutely great. Um, anything else in this episode uh, strike you? Well, Hurley says something really interesting he says when people stare at the ocean all quiet like they're moping right right well that is curious because that's one thing that these people are doing on this show quite a bit of uh, some iconic scenes Locke does that with the spin around camera desmond does that yeah with the spin around camera um charlie in this case rose I, right so are they all moping i mean i don't know I, I i wasn't sure if if he was he was getting at the character or the script is getting at something deeper there or if it was just kind of a throwaway line but it did make me think yeah of all those other situations where someone's done that yeah although i guess if you're on an island 
what else are you going to do? Exactly. Well, let's move on to Enter 77, the Saeed episode. What did you think of this one? It's so uneven. Um, Hmm. I thought a lot of it was well-written and action-packed and thoughtful and and pretty great, and some of it was just kind of there. Well, let's start with the good stuff. What did you like about Enter 77? Saeed's flashback. Hmm. Um, I thought... The acting was wonderful. Naveen Andrews was great. And Betty on who played his victim, Amira. that that scene that they had together was just gave me chills. It was so powerful. You know, the the expressions on their faces and the words that they used and the close ups. I loved it. I thought well, that part was great. I totally agree, at least as far as that observation goes, because, you know, it's funny. Lost has some really big set pieces, right? They've got uh, big stations. They've got the uh, golf course. They've got the beach set. Um, but some of the best scenes and i guess this might be true Mm -hmm. for any drama but some of the best scenes take place in small confined places you know when ben is locked in the hatch um, and people go in to visit him i mean something about the way that you are forced to do nothing but pay attention to the human Mm -hmm. elements in a scene um, i think are really fantastic and i totally agree um it's it's funny i do I did think, though, that Anne Bedian or or, or basically Amira's character, the acting was a little... I mean, I think that if she had turned the dial back a couple of notches, I might have liked it a little better. At a certain point when she's talking about the cat and she has this... She starts talking with her teeth sticking out and, and starts hissing almost. That was a little distracting, but... I, uh, overall, I can agree that, you know, for Seed's character, for him to uh, basically admit that mm-hmm. he recognizes her and that the, her face has haunted him, I believe that, absolutely, yeah. about her character. So what the stuff on the island, though, wasn't uh, all that great the, for him? The ping pong tournament, um, Saeed's insistence that he get his stuff back, it all rings really false for me. It's It just, I don't know, maybe mm. I... Maybe I'm lacking lacking some kind of understanding in a Sawyer's character. It just seems to me that somebody who was tortured and beaten and you know, three seconds away from dying, wouldn't care so much. Might have a slightly different perspective. Exactly. Well, you know, it kind of, there are certain things that, that they have characters do that become one note, right? Sawyer likes his stuff. Michael wants to fight Walt. I mean, <laughs> and you, if you hear it too much, it starts to annoy. And I think that they were kind of getting into that territory with Saeed and, I mean, Sawyer and his obsession over his stuff. So I can kind of see that. But, you know, I got to say, when, when it comes to when you were looking for mythology, if the previous episode, you know, Trisha Naka Dead was a character episode. This was supposed to be the mythology episode, right. the story episode. And Mikhail, the conversation that they have with Mikhail as they're playing their little chess game on the couch there, um, I thought was pretty key and pretty pretty but decent as why well. Why did it have to devolve into fisticuffs? I thought that <laughs> I thought the fight was I'll say it, the fight was stupid. I thought there was really no place in this episode for a fist fight. Well, I, I would agree to some extent because we were just talking about the scenes in the flashback, right? They're in the basement of the restaurant having these intense conversations. On the island you have them sitting on the couch in this weird little cabin and they are talking and the way Mikhail says it is great. You know, why are we continuing this charade when uh-huh. we know it's progressed to the next level uh-huh. I thought that was intense but to me next level does not mean fist fight yeah right. exactly so I, I, you know you're starting to change my mind a lot. I, but okay but the conversations about I was at a listening post and or his line I think the most important thing Mikhail says uh, is still you know the hostiles were here a long time mm-hmm. before we were here and mm-hmm. the, the, these are important clues that we begin to kind of see play out remember when Miles sees the, the statue yeah, yeah. and he says 
I think, way before. You know, what do you mean? I mean, I think talking about the history of the island was was very, very important. So, you know, kind of picking apart. I re- we remember saying how much of what he said was true and how much was a lie. Is this another Ben situation where we can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth? Right. Now, uh, you and everybody has pointed out the title of this episode is kind uh-huh. of curious. They go back to 1977. Yeah, so what is Inter-77? Why would they pick 77? I thought that's, you know, if you're going to say that the the whole thing with Roger Workman and the Dharma van was, was foreshadowing, then this could be too. This sounds like they had, they started to map that out right around this time when they're writing right. these episodes. So pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, there were still, you know, there was, he did get off a couple of, Sawyer did get off a couple of uh, nicknames. He called uh, Jin and Son. Uh, crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is is borderline offensive. <laughs> well, but kind that's of funny. Sawyer. That's Sawyer. And, uh, and another good Sawyer line in this episode that turns out to be, you know, as we lead up to one of my favorite episodes of Lost, when he's still going after Nikki and Paulo. And yeah. he sees Nikki again and he's like, who the hell are you? Uh-huh. What's going on? I mean, that is a continual um, theme for him that turns out to be well proven, I think. So... Yeah, you know, Nikki and Paulo, they just never did fit in. And the funny thing is, now that we've come back from the the six the, the six week hiatus, it's pretty clear their fate was sealed. They were now starting to already write them into the sunset. Uh, that that bugs me. I mean, I'll get more into this when we discuss expose. But, <laughs> okay. You know, we didn't like their characters, and they were probably not well written in. But they really weren't given much of a chance. Yeah. Well, I. But there are ways to introduce characters, and we, this show every season has introduced new characters in relatively good ways. Yeah. This that was this is just not one of them. Yeah. They, they stumbled, I would say, and unfortunately, those characters had to pay the price. Now, something that was presented as having significance, obviously, and you know, again, looking over the broad history of Lost, may in fact have significance is. The cat, yeah. the little cat, who turns out to be named Nadia, uh-huh. who is looks like the cat that the that the woman was was holding when she's talking about rescuing the cat is also exactly. on the island. Yeah. What's the deal with the cat? What do you think? Not Jacob, not Jacob, or the the smoke monster, or whatever the man that in person, black. the man in black. You think that he was what the cat? Have you? Anything's possible. <laughs> You know, I mean, mysteriously reappearing animals are a theme. Kate's horse, the the boar, the, or Sa- Sawyer's boar, yeah. right? Or the frog, I or, guess. Or the frog. There, there are so many animals, spirits that seem to just pop up. I, you know, it's it's clearly not a figment of their imagination. So you have to th- think and. You yeah, know. they talked about the cat, so it wasn't a vision. So, yeah, I, I, I am curious. Uh, you know, as we look at the the final few hours that we have left of the show, we, there are I think there are a lot of things in this episode that you're thinking to yourself: Are we gonna? Is that gonna come back? Or were they really starting to just sort of throw stuff out there to see what sticks for later on? Mm-hmm. But uh, the cat is certainly is still still a question mark for me. Anything else in this episode uh, jump out? If you blink, you'll miss it. But. Okay. <laughs> In the room where they're beating up on Saeed in the restaurant, mm. you see on a shelf behind Saeed, you see a square orange and yellow box. Okay. That is a box of Diamond Brand crackers. Oh, yeah. Okay. That I, I didn't notice it, but I know exactly the box you're talking about. If you, I guess it's a Hawaii thing, though. It's a Hawaii-only thing. The, the, the factory is here in, in Honolulu. And the box looks exactly the same uh-huh. now as it did back then, as it looked when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that orange and yellow box. It's on. There's one on our fridge right now. Our kids love that. Uh, that so there you go. Well, you know, you're, it's true that with Lost, they have to Greek all of their products. You right. kind of make them look like fake or generic products. But that was. you're right. If that was there, that is definitely a recognizable 
visual icon of Hoy. How I don't know how they they could they could you Not can mistake it, it. yeah. Right. Well, that's interesting. I'll have to go back and check that out. Well, finally, let's move on to our Claire episode, Par Avion. What did you think of this episode? It's a good episode. I enjoyed it, but there are little flaws in logic that just kind of stick in my craw. <laughs> okay. So, again, I guess like uh, Enter 77, just a little uneven for you? A, a little. Like, well, for instance, um, the doctor tells Aunt Lindsay and Claire that somebody is paying the bills for you. Mm-hmm. That's just not a conversation a doctor would have with a patient's family. That would be, uh-huh. he'd like refer them to an, an administrator. He or accounting or something. He wouldn't know the details of that. And just having the doctor say it was just kind of not logical. Well, you know, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, for one thing, this is an Australian hospital. Who true, knows? Maybe the true. maybe the doctors in Australia do the billing. I don't know. But now, now that you mentioned it, and I, I hate to get started with kind of the negatives, but let's continue that theme of what she said. Okay. The dialogue being obvious or just a little weird. Um, there was a meme on the internet or actually a video or a joke on the internet called What If Lost Were Like Seinfeld? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what they had done was they'd take a scene from Lost and give it a laugh track yeah. where people, you know, just like watching Seinfeld. Somebody says something funny and you've got that under you know current of people chuckling and they did the scene from season five where son and jack and ben are in the van and talking about you know well if you don't do it i'll kill him for you and then they put in the laugh track and Uh it was kind of funny it was kind of effective well the dialogue in this episode in many scenes felt like that to me they felt like sitcom (laughs) lines and if you if i I swear to god i'd love if uh, someone more talented than i would do this if you go back to the scene specifically in the jungle where saeed and uh, Locke are bickering about you know going back and uh, why why are we following your your strange things or why did you blow up the thing if you had told me there was c4 and then finally kate goes to mikhail and says why don't you just tell me if we're going in the right direction and mikhail says you're going in the right direction yeah the time timing of those lines i swear to god go back and watch it it it, one thing that i love about lost is that things seem to be depicted fairly organically that Uh this is how conversations flow this is how people interact but from that scene with the doctor just and, and most of those scenes in the hospital like the cranky aunt kind of you know, picking on Claire for going home and taking a shower. And uh-huh. that scene in the jungle where they're, they're bickering just sounded unnatural, sounded cheesy, just didn't sound right. So there was something very distinctly off about the writing for for um, Par Avion. But all that said, I think there were some things, obviously, about this episode that had a strong impact for the rest of the show for our enjoyment of the series. So I just love Mikhail. Yeah, Mikhail was good. You know, he wasn't around long, and and he didn't play much of a role, but he's one of my favorite characters. Right, he was very mysterious, and, you know, this episode he dies, but Uh he's not dead because he doesn't die, although eventually he does, or does he? Sort of. But in any case, the you know, when he gets his brain fried and his mouth foams up, and so you're thinking, oh, you know, we're losing an interesting character, but in a way, we don't really. So that was one thing. And... There was the line, the line that we all jumped on even when this first aired years ago when Mikhail is talking to John Locke and says, I knew a John Locke, but the John Locke I knew was para. Yeah. And then gets cut off by a natural, you know, tempos and dialogue by uh, Danielle. But in any case, clearly he's going to say the John Locke I knew was paralyzed. So the question is, is there some history that we've not seen or will perhaps see between Mikhail, one of our favorite now gone maybe characters, and John Locke? I don't know if there will be, but I would love that. I would would love to see how Mikhail knew about Locke's condition and why Rousseau so wanted to cut off Mikhail. I mean, clearly 
she heard him talking and she knew what he was going to say and she knew that it would implicate her in something. At least that's the way I read that. Yeah, I definitely, I'm very suspicious of Danielle's behavior as well in relation to Mikhail. He goes, she goes, I have no interest in the man in that cabin and I'll meet you guys later. You know, I'm not going to be a part of this. Yeah. And then when she comes back, it's like, why is he still alive? Darn, you know, I thought he was going to be dead. And she's just so ready to plug him the whole time. So there's something going on there. She's acting really weird. And there's something going on with him and John Locke. Um, Clearly he was alive I guess in the seven. I mean, he was. He's in. He was been. He's been around. Yeah. With, with uh, the the others, but John Locke was never paralyzed on the island. I don't think so. Yeah, something about that. I'm. I, I don't know what it could be. Maybe now we do know. I think already that the others had the communications with the outside right. world. They could get these very thick dossiers on everybody with files on their lives. So maybe that's what he's referring to. Right. But I think it's much more interesting that there's something else going on. And you know, Mikhail unfortunately dies three or four times I think in the show so on one hand if I he suddenly count. if he suddenly surfaces in season six part of you is going to go like ah oh, they didn't go there but it would make perfect sense because if he's why not he's, yeah. he's the he's the he's the Im- immortal other um, speaking of characters that want other characters dead I don't think I ever figured this out why did Christian Shepard really want Claire to put her mom down I I think he's a big chicken <laughs> I think I don't know. I I think he just couldn't handle another responsibility. He couldn't handle another reminder of of something bad he'd done. I Mm. I don't think he wanted her dead necessarily. I just, he he saw an opportunity to to tell Claire, maybe you want to help your mom in this way. Right. I mean, the big reveal of this episode, I guess the elephant in the room that we just not even talk about anymore is that, ooh, Jack Shepard and Claire are siblings Uh because Christian Shepard had this affair. But... The fact that now we know Christian Shepard has a pretty significant role on the island and in what's going on with many of these characters' lives, the fact that he seemed to encourage Claire to kill off his mom, I I just haven't been able to puzzle that out. Particularly because, despite the fact that there was a line in this episode, like, you know, my mom's not dead, you know, it's not a fatality yet uh-huh. or whatever, and then Christian Shepard wants her to put her down. But Yeah, why does the cop think she, that she's dead? I don't know. I mean, so there's something about the life of Carol, is it Carol? Uh-huh. That's significant and it's significant because carol does come back from her coma and then becomes a significant maybe he just doesn't want to encounter her on the island (laughs) he doesn't want to bump but doesn't want her to be resurrected i don't know i mean maybe he just didn't want to pay for her bills for much longer so he wanted to put down but yeah i'm well christian does say something interesting you know he says don't confuse hope with guilt right and i think there's a lot of parallels obviously between that theme and and trisha tanaka is dead exactly so what, what are the motivations here why are you doing something here so you know there might be some bigger conversations happening but it's just yeah it's just one of the mysteries that i that i still remain for me there are uh, there is another parallel that's significant i think in this episode and that is mysterious very wealthy benefactor takes care of the bills anonymously of uh-huh. someone in a coma like um widmore t- took care of the medical bills for uh, Daniel Faraday's girlfriend. Right. So I think that the parallels they're drawing there between, you know, how significant or important Christian Shepard might be and what Charles Widmore's role is, yeah. I think is not accidental either. Now,
Now, um, going back to some of the things that Mikhail said, I, I, you know, you can, you, I can definitely remember loving this episode because if you're interested in the mythology of the show, he says so much. Right. Now, isn't he the first person to say that Ben is not the person in charge, that there's a higher power involved? Yeah, I think so. Now, there was that conversation in uh, Maternity Leave right. where they say he, and so everyone's trying to figure out who the he is in that conversation. Mm-hmm. But remember, uh, Hurley and everyone who's escaped from Alcatraz, at least, and the stories that they're telling are operating under the assumption that Ben is the boss. So for Mikhail to say at this point in the series that there's, you know, we're going to be talking about someone one level up at least, mm-hmm. this uh, magnificent man who makes the list, who knows all of you, I think was pretty significant in the show. This is a, a Claire-centric episode, but I think it's really significant in the development of Locke's character. Oh, absolutely. Like, what is what is Locke up to? What is the deal with the C4? Did he think that nobody was going to notice? What what did, was he planning on doing? I mean, I know it's a really wacky far out theory, but even at this point, I think there's more than one Locke walking around. Okay, so as we've been discussing after the end of season five, which is how far back had Locke been compromised or how far uh-huh. back had, had there been something funny going on with Locke? You're saying that this is proof to you that it goes this far back? Yeah, like he beats the chess game. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that he beats the chess game. It seems like he would need some kind of higher knowledge or power or just skill mm-hmm. to beat it. And it seems that only Jacob or not Jacob actually could have that. I guess. I mean, the the chess game is significant in the sense that Locke, since the day we first meet him, is obsessed with games, whether it's backgammon or mousetrap or whatever. I mean, that's sort of his thing. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's true. I think even leading up to this episode, people have already been observing in the show that Locke is acting a little funny, but this is definitely an episode where he takes some pretty concrete actions that are inexplicable unless he has a higher purpose. Now, Saeed later describes this as your blow up everything to get off the island tour. <laughs> but now, yeah, we now that we've seen what we've seen at the end of season five, was he basically just trying to keep everyone on the island because he still wanted to figure out what was going on in the island or was there something else motivating him and right. I, yeah i think that's that's definitely a fair observation now the one of the key icons in this episode is the bird that they want to catch right. and they get a message onto the bird's leg uh, speaking of things that may or may not come up later do you think that claire's bird is ever going to surface in season six I don't know. Now that they've introduced the whole time shift anomaly business, it just seems that the birds wouldn't come into play. Well, actually, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, if we're if we learned later on that the trajectory you take off the island, et cetera, et cetera, affects the amount of time that I mean, for all we know, the bird left Claire's hand and then gets shot back to the Middle Ages or something. So that's certainly true. Another possibility is that wherever the birds came from could not, you know, might not be a a, a relevant place for them to arrive. So, yeah, I was just kind of that's, I think, one going to be one of our loose ends that it's that it was more about the hope. Uh It was more about sending a message even if there wasn't anybody there to hear it, that that was an important thing for her to do. And they needed a character to do this, or people would be scratching their heads. They needed a way to demonstrate that a character is trying to get them off the island. Right, that's true. I mean, then this happens periodically because you you can't watch a show like Lost and wonder why isn't someone working on the rescue plan. So, Uh yeah, I was just kind of curious if you thought the bird was going to come back. Um, some some dialogue in this episode, although awkward, still I thought was fairly significant. We had the conversation between Son and Claire, mm-hmm. where she says, oh, if my mom could see me now working with bait, you know, basically 
as we learn or as we know yeah. how her family feels about her being a fisherman or involved with a fisherman, how that's uh-huh. a lower caste. So I thought that was a, a pretty insightful, brief period of dialogue. Well, you know, we talk about daddy issues on the show and how bad dads can be. But another theme seems to be disappointing one's mom. <laughs> yeah, mother like, mommy like issues. Kate and her mom and and Claire and her mom, son and her mom. There are mommy issues, but it's more on the side of the mom and right. how the mom can be disappointed in you. That's true. Well, now that you've mentioned that, the other mom-daughter situation in this episode that comes up is Rousseau and right. Alex. And she has a really long or at least intense conversation with Kate about that. Yeah, Kate approaches her and says, why aren't you asking me any questions about Alex? And Rousseau says, well, imagine Jack didn't know that you cared. Imagine you didn't know each other and Jack didn't know how you felt. And it made me think about... You know, Kate says to Jack just before the bomb goes off, if we do this, you're not going to know me. We won't know each other. We won't have a relationship. Mm, Right. That's a good connection. I mean, uh, talk about uh, foreshadowing and, you know, possible message that they're sending. I I thought that was kind of an interesting conversation. And now it does have that added meaning because we could be facing a a universe where that Jack doesn't know or Kate doesn't know that they ever had feelings for each other. So, but yeah, um, mommy issues, definitely a good call there for a show that definitely is heavy on daddy issues. I, I also struck me that, you know, Kate, since very early on, has been kind of a tree climber so this was another episode for her to show off that she can climb over things with the with the towers you know i have to say that's a skill i would really like to have <laughs> to be that kind of a tomboy you know the actress evangeline Lilly talks about how she climbs trees on the set for fun uh-huh. so i could definitely see that anything else uh, strike you about this episode in the scene where they're about to have the picnic and you know there's all the stuff laid out in the blanket you see a pitcher of milk and i'm just wondering where did that milk come from i mean it's been a really long time since the last food drop i know well first of all there was a cow in this episode as well you know so maybe but maybe but that's a little that didn't connect actually the reason it's funny you should mention specifically the milk because i think it was in the previous episode i mean talk about dialogue that's kind of awkward and painful to hear the one line that they that they, i think they give nikki or paulo when they're yeah. going through the the the, the pantry is uh-huh. did you look behind the powdered milk yeah and it seemed like such a weird thing for for them to say except to explain how they would have milk in the next episode yeah so. that's that's awkward <laughs> yeah but uh, from milk to ping pong tables to skeletal arms and soda crackers in the background <laughs> i mean we're picking on some stuff here that we might not have really cared about before but overall i'm having a blast yeah, I with am this too. season three So that's our two cents. After a quick break, we'll hear from you all, everybody. And now it's time for you all, everybody, where you, our beloved listeners, get to have your say, starting with Trisha Tanaka is dead. Awilda writes, this by far is one of my favorite episodes. I love Hurley, especially when he tells Sawyer, shut up, red neck man. Lots of funny and endearing moments. Sawyer teaching Jin English, getting the van to start, etc. I forgot about the warm, fuzzy feeling when Hurley dared to hope. Absolutely. Very warm, fuzzy episode. Dave emails and says, We just re-re-re-watched Trisha Tanaka is Dead, and this is one of my favorite episodes of the entire series of Lost so far. It seems that all of my faves include Hurley and the Dharma van. They just make me want to stand up and cheer for the underdog. Go Hurley. Go Hurley. Connie Ohe Jack writes, in Trisha Tanaka is 
dead. There is a scene where Sawyer is checking out the van and he finds a blueprint where he says something like, looks like they were building a road. I'm not sure if this has any significance or if it was ever addressed later on. Could this be the road to the temple or to wherever all the children, other others, or law-carrying people are? Hey, why not? I mean, we had a runway that paid off later, so yeah, why not a winding not? road through the jungle? Ilias writes on the blog, Trisha Tanaka is dead is not one of my favorite episodes. Huh. It was much better than the tattoo episode that preceded <laughs> it, but still, that meteorite thing just bothered me, and it still does. They could have found something more realistic. Looking at Hurley when he arrived at home, it had the feeling of one of those cheap comedies. The Roger skeleton is now, in hindsight, more tragic than the first time we watched it, especially since all three, Sawyer, Jin, and Hurley, all met in the 70s, and there was one woman that I did love when Hurley hugs Sawyer and Sawyer visibly softened. Yeah, that's true. I but did like that. Did you think the meteorite was too much, a little over the top? No, it's a meteor. <laughs> I mean, that was it was a was a throwaway line when Hurley first mentions the meteor yeah. way back when. So they had to depict it. They weren't going to get us away from that. But you know, special effects has never been the strong point of the show. But I I didn't mind it that much. Nathan Ohio writes, and Trisha Tanaka is dead. As Sawyer and Kate travel through the jungle to the beach camp, Sawyer steps on some sort of dart, which gets stuck in his foot. Remind you of anything? In season five, Sawyer steps on something sharp in the jungle as he and Juliet are walking through the jungle in The Lie. I don't know if it means anything, but it seems conspicuous as if our attention were supposed to be drawn to it. A subtle reference to repeating time loops and mirror images, maybe? That's a great observation. Yeah, it made. is. I, I had completely forgotten. And you're right. You know, watching the episode, you're like, what was that? Why does he yeah. step on a dart? Or where does the dart come from? And, you know, is that going to be explained later? But the the tie to the fact that he steps on something uh-huh. else in season five, that is significant, I think. There's yeah. something going on there. And in season six, I think Sawyer's going to step on something. I think that's a fairly safe prediction to make. Very good, Nate. Jen in Chicago emails, I really enjoyed Hurley's backstory in this episode. I loved how it clearly linked Hurley's eating problems with his father leaving, providing another great layer to the character. The whole scene with the meteor, or asteroid, was very reminiscent of Donnie Darko. Yes. Though that would probably be reading too much into it. No, I don't no. think so. Cheech as Hurley's father, I think, was a great casting choice. His quirkiness plays really well against Hurley's neuroticism and serves as a great foil to his character. Trisha Tanaka is dead is just about everything I love about Lost rolled up into one episode. It's got the mystery of the numbers, Sawyer's wit and sarcasm, Hurley's lovability, guns and stunts, just a touch of romance and a darn good montage with beautiful Michael Giacchino music. It did not do much to advance the plot other than at the very end, but it sure felt satisfying. Just about as much of a 180 degree turnaround from Stranger in a Strange Land as you could (laughs) hope for. It really reminded me why I got so into this show in the first place. Sal from New Jersey writes, This episode contains what I feel is not only one of the greatest moments on Lost, but one of the greatest moments in the history of television. And it had nothing to do with the physics of time travel or the epic battle for the island. The despair and heaviness surrounding the imprisonment of our principal losties that preceded this episode was wiped clean with a little hope from Hugo. The events leading up to that microbus starting and the way it melted into the final scenes were executed beautifully. And could they have found a more fitting soundtrack to this than Shambhala? The way this song melts into Giacchino's soft symphonic version of it was enough alone to bring a tear of joy to my eye. Also, the way the music played on as our heroes returned to share their tale of victory with the woman they loved was just brilliant. The loneliness Sawyer feels by not finding Kate was so palpable. This, to me, was no throwaway or stalled episode. It defines the very reason I love Lost. The interaction of these characters, their history, and the personal challenges they face are what makes the series great. I hope we get to see more of this in Season 6. 
It was a little lacking in season five. No disagreement here. I mean, definitely a fantastic episode and a lot of love, again, for that musical score and that last scene. Vera in Russia writes, Trisha Tanaka is Dead is one of my favorite episodes, not only in this season, but in the whole of Lost. Many people perceive it mostly as a comedy relief episode, but Darleton still managed to move the plot forward in a very grave manner (laughs) with the skeleton turning out to be Ben's father. The moment when Hurley jumpstarts the van is epic. I can't find another word for it. It is one of my all-time favorite feel-good moments. I really thought they were going to die when I first watched this episode. When I feel down, I often rewatch the scene and I have a huge spontaneous smile on my face by the time the scene ends. I find this scene so powerfully moving. The great Shambhala song definitely has a lot to do with it and I admire the instrumental part that plays in the end. Man, it was so good. Lost is the best show ever. Yeah, it is. And then and, and they appreciate it all the way over in Russia. Let's move on to Enter 77. Michelle from Honduras writes, One of my favorite background characters has always been Mikhail, and I was pretty bummed when he finally died for good. Or did he? <laughs> when watching Enter 77, I found myself thinking a lot about Ilana. To start with, Mikhail is obviously Russian. I, for one, have assumed that Ilana was Russian ever since we saw her in that Russian hospital where Jacob visited her. Mikhail is missing an eye. When Ilana was all bandaged up in that hospital, only one of her eyes was visible. Perhaps she lost her eye and was in the hospital for that reason. Why doesn't she wear an eye patch? Well, maybe she has a glass eye a la the eye Bernard found in the arrow. Rewatching those episodes, I strongly get the sense that Mikhail is a true believer in Jacob and the mythology of Jacob. He follows orders, he knows about the lists, and he knows why some of the lossies aren't on the lists. He describes Jacob, presumably, as a magnificent man, and he would rather die than fail at protecting his people from the threat the lossies pose. Similarly, Ilana is clearly a disciple of Jacob, as we saw when he visited her and asked for her help. So do you think there is some sort of relationship between Mikhail and Ilana? Wouldn't it be cool if in Ilana flashback in season six, we got to see Mikhail again? Well, there's some pretty interesting parallels that Michelle picks up there between yeah. Mikhail and Ilana. I hadn't thought that those through either. Um, so either <laughs> either Mikhail coming back or Ilana as a new character could be a window to seeing Mikhail again. So, hey, I definitely like that. Yeah. Good stuff. Erwin writes on the blog, I have a question about Saeed and company's time at the flame. Locke beats the computer at chess and a video of Chang plays. During Chang's prompts on the computer, Locke enters the code 38 in an attempt to communicate with the mainland. Yet in the same episode, he blows up the station to keep it from being used to communicate with the outside world, and a few episodes later, he blows up the submarine. He does some pretty crazy things to keep anyone from leaving the island, so why would he enter that code in this episode? Hmm. I think that's a fair question. Yeah, it is Wait a, a fair minute. question. Yeah, if you're supposed to believe that he's trying to cut off everything, why are the fr- actually the first two codes he enters? The first one is to try to communicate, yeah. and the second one is to get the sonar station to work. Uh-huh. Both things would be antithesis to what he's trying to do eventually, which is cut off the island. Right. So why did he do that? <laughs> Absolutely fair questions. Gavin from here in Pearl City writes, my observation here is an ironic line from Rousseau. She refuses to enter the flame station, justifying her actions by saying that she remained alive on the island for so long by avoiding moments like this. But in season four, she dies because she is trying to avoid a dangerous situation when she escorts Alex and Carl away from the barracks and into the jungle 
leading to the confrontation with Kimi. So I guess that's kind of ironic, except in that in the situation where she dies, she was sent away. You know, right. she wasn't trying to avoid a situation. She was definitely involved at that point. Yeah. And I think we, as we said, I think there's something more to Danielle saying she doesn't want to have anything yeah, to do Yeah, she just him. gets away in way too much of a hurry. <laughs> Terry emailed and says, things I liked. The compass bearing of 305 based on John 305. Oh, that's yeah. the bearing that Faraday said, right? Patchy does a good job of pretending to be a member of the Dharma Initiative. I enjoyed listening to him explain details that we saw in Season 5, like the truth. And John Locke loves his games. It's funny how he cannot resist the chess game. I like Locke, but why must he do stuff like this? It got him <laughs> caught by Patchy. At least he makes up for things by blowing stuff up. Harold writes, These episodes were just the beginnings of coming up to speed and intensity for the final four hours of the season. They still have the wandering lost qualities of the treading water period, mm. but each one has an important development that is used in the final stretch. Enter 77 gives Locke the means for the episode The Man from Tallahassee to give us his initial motive to keep the island cut off from rescue. That sets him up as the dupe of the island, or presumably of Jacob's nemesis, to get everyone to stay or to return for what purpose we have yet to learn. They run with that into and throughout season four. Absolutely. So, I mean, again, this is stuff that kind of ties back to season five and what's been going on there. I think it's mm -hmm. a fair case to say that stuff's been going on with him this far back. Um, and yeah, this is really setting us up for what turned out to be a pretty strong ending for yeah. a season. Rich in Cleveland writes, Enter 77 is a great source of exposition, but I wonder if some of it will ever pay off. Mikhail talks about being stationed at a listening post, much like Leonard. He talks of conducting unpleasant activities, much like Saeed's Basra incident and many of the other survivors' dark histories. His was one of my favorite episodes when it aired. He's playing mind games, scattering clues, and showing that Lost could have thrilling action as well as, unlike the cheesy gunfights of season 5, mm. but it has suffered a bit in retrospect because of all the loose ends. I like the way Sammy served as a proxy for the smoke monster. Admit what you did or you will leave this room in that bag. It's foreshadowing everyone's eventual judgment. Just like Yemi told Echo to repent right. or you suffer. You gotta say you're yeah. sorry. But uh, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of loose ends. I definitely felt that Ender 77 had things that may or may not be written later, and I think some of it's gonna have to be forgotten. Bonita in Atlanta writes, Question I'm still not sure of. Did Saeed really torture Amira? Or did he just admit to it to give her the peace he could not find himself? I am also wondering if the animals we have seen might be totems or animal spirit guides. Or just red herrings. Well, we talked about the animals. I think there's something to that. Totems. That's a really interesting idea because there's so much exploration of different cultures and different religions mm -hmm. that, I mean, I, it hadn't it occurred to me, you know, Native American mythology. Well, I think I said totem during our conversation. I think yeah. that there is a way that these animals might represent the characters that they're, they're haunting to some mm -hmm. extent. But I don't think there was ever... Uh, did you ever doubt that Saeed actually tortured Amira? Was no. that in question? No, I, I absolutely believe he was sincere. I mean, just, you know, you could see the pain on his face. You could see the regret and the sorrow. I totally believed it. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, maybe I now have to, maybe I might rewatch it again. It never, it ne I never doubted that he had tortured her, and it seemed that he was working his way to that kind of admission in the end. But uh, I can see maybe, you know, Naveen Andrews was too good acting and acting as somebody who's lying. Ilias writes on the blog, The flashback was excellent, although the fact that Saeed spent significant time in Paris but previously did not understand Rousseau's message in the pilot episode always bothered me a bit. 
I do not believe that there was any inattention on the producer's side, but just a slip. It also shows that no matter how often Saeed repents, he still is that tragic figure that kills and tortures people. So he can shed his skin all he wants, but he still is what he always was, a very hard and mean person that has caused much pain and suffering. Don't take me wrong. I love Saeed, but if you look at the facts, there is only one truth. I know. I thought it odd that this seemed to be the first time this episode aired. That seemed to be the thing that people latched onto. The Saeed doesn't speak French. That's such an odd thing to latch onto. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in Paris who don't speak French. Right, especially if you're in a you know you're an expat community or a, a community of former Iraqis, for right. example. You you're going to be able to surround yourself with people that speak your language. But um, do you think? I mean, I think the more provocative thing that Ilias is saying is that Saeed is a killer. Remember, all of season five, he was told you're a killer, you're a killer, and he ends up shooting a young boy. So is that his lot in life? Is no matter how many times he's uh, he's sorry, he apologizes, he's haunted by the people he's killed, but he's is he always going to be a killer? I think everybody in the show reverts to their inner nature somewhat. That's definitely you know, what we saw in season five. I think Sawyer is going to always have a little bit of con man in him. I think Kate's always going to have a little bit of commitment issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, I think probably. In a little part of his soul, he is a little bit predatory. Yeah, I think so, but a good thought. Moving on to Par Avion, Jason B. writes on the blog, In this episode, Claire tells the cop that her car accident is caused by someone hitting her. It made me think a bit about Nadia getting hit in the last finale and Juliet's husband getting hit by the bus. All traumatic incidents in our characters' lives. We know that Jacob was responsible and present for Nadia's death. Could Jacob be behind the major emotional events of these other two? More so, is there a chance that season six will have additional Jacob flashbacks to see his interaction with the remainder of of the characters. There's so many more. There's Michael getting hit by the car. Right. I mean, car accidents are a significant yeah. theme. The accident that Jake is, I mean, Jake, J- uh, Jack is trying to uh-huh. fix. Yeah. Um, Shannon's involved, I think, or, you know, they talk Sarah. about the, Sarah, yeah. right. So car accidents, definitely a big issue. Um, is Jacob a player in those? I'm not necessarily sure. In fact, no, I'm a believer. You are? Yeah. You think that's what's going on? Because yeah. there's two ways to read this, the Saeed, you know, death of Nadia. Was he killing Nadia or was he saving Saeed? I see it as preventing Saeed from being run over the same way right. Nadia was. Right, I agree. But um, I don't think we're going to see more Jacob flashbacks and him doing things with other characters. I, at least I hope not. It seemed that... The only way to explain how rushed those flashbacks were in the season five finale was because they had to get to those, I don't know, five or six mm-hmm. people, right? Um, I, I, I don't think they're going to say, oh, but by the way, he also visited, you know, somebody else. And he also visited somebody else. I think that um, I hope they're done with that particular uh, story twist. And I hope they just kind of move forward. I'm re- I think that's sort of my theme for season six. I don't want to go back and revisit too much more. I just want to move forward. Yeah. Amber from Utah writes, there's just a couple parts in this episode that don't make sense to me. Why did Desmond shoot his gun when Claire and Jin and Son were looking to trap the birds? If he hadn't, then Charlie wouldn't have needed to go looking for it and die. Doesn't make sense. And I absolutely hate that they made Christian Claire's father. Ugh, that's just so soap opera. Lost is not a soap Bopper, and it shouldn't try to be one. Bah. Well, do you think that revealing that Christian Shepherd, or I mean, basically that Jack and Claire are sister and brother, is a soap opera move? Um, it's not that solely. I think it's maybe the way they went about 
Go, revealing it. Yeah. I mean, again, we talked about this. This episode is very sitcom luck, very, yeah. very flat like. And I think that, you know, it just rang hollow for a lot of people. But we are learning that Christian Shepherd is significant on the mm-hmm. island, that the Shepherd family, actually, it's it maybe going back to Grandpa Shepherd has something to do with this island. So I don't I don't think that really bothered me too much. But she makes a great point. They're about to catch a bird. If they had a bird, Charlie wouldn't get himself killed. So why didn't Desmond let them catch that bird? Yeah. Does that make any sense? No. I, I don't know. Other than he really, I, I don't know. <laughs> Just needed to pad the episode out about five more minutes or something. Yan from France writes, Claire is a shepherd. Okay, why not? All the mother-daughter issues are nice, as we see in Claire and her mother and adoption and Danielle and Alex, and the first revelation of what the lists are. People who are not flawed, that can understand, who are picked by a great man. They know who the losties are and why they are flawed. But will the seagull ever reappear, especially since it came up at Comic-Con? That's right, where it was given to somebody. If time is reset, will it be the reason why they realize that something is different? Hmm. Finally, John tries to kill Mikhail, and it would be my best death scene if only he actually died. Mikhail wanted to suicide since he killed Clue, but why? He told them about the list and the sub, so what kind of information was he not supposed to tell? I don't know. <laughs> it seemed that, you know, he pretty much spilled as many secrets as there was to spill before he he kicks the bucket. So what was he so, you know, reluctant to share? Uh yeah, but you know, Mikhail and Death, clearly there's, you know, it's not this the end of the story wasn't necessarily there. And again, the seagull question, I'd forgotten. It was the prop given away at Comic-Con. That's right, yeah. So does does that come up at Comic-Con because they want to tell us that it becomes an issue in season six or are they getting rid of the prop because it's not going to be an issue in season six what do you think well, I don't know. they're getting rid of all the props later on this right, year the big auction. yeah I, I don't know maybe they're trying to make a statement well yeah i mean again we're dealing with the possibility of a reset and maybe you know if they're if they don't know each other in los angeles where they actually land where jack says you know see you in lax um Maybe a bird, a bird showing up with this story is the kind of thing that sets off alarm bells. To me, it would just sort of set off a couple of crackpot theories and, and conspiracy theories, and that'd be kind of the end of it. Jenna in Chicago writes, I was really intrigued by the moment shared between Locke and Mikhail when Mikhail said that he knew him. Before he was cut off, I think Mikhail was going to say the Locke I knew was paralyzed. Mm-hmm. But it was strange that Locke also appeared to accept that Mikhail knew him. Has Mikhail figured into any Locke flashbacks that I'm just not remembering? If the word was paralyzed, then they had to know each other off the island rather than on it in another time. Absolutely. And we discussed that. I yeah. mean, he was never paralyzed on the Well, I guess he was briefly paralyzed on the island, but it would have to be some oh, knowledge right. of him when he was off the island. Kyle writes an email, good Claire story, good writing, very good acting, and a couple of minor and unsurprising reveals. If we found out that Christian was Claire's father in the first 30 episodes, it would have blown me away. But by this time, it was an I knew it moment. That's true. Yeah. The whole episode was brought up by the wonderful ending throwing you for a loop. All in all, season three is a freight train that doesn't really start until not in Portland or flashes before your eyes, but really picks up steam here. As I look forward, I see the shows that made season three so great. But my oh my, the ending. I don't think there has ever been a better five hours of TV than those last episodes of season three. And I cannot wait to see them again. Yeah, I'm with you there. But I, we didn't talk about the ending for uh, this episode though, with the football and Jack catching the football. Wasn't that 
kind of odd. That was a kind of a WTF moment. That was sort of up there with uh, the Red Sox winning the World Series and yeah. all of that. So Jack kind of gets some of the really good shocking moments. We have to go back and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. He gets he gets a lot of the good ones. I guess that maybe it's because Matthew Fox can keep a secret. Well, in any case, that's all the feedback that we're going to share this week. But we do want to send a shout out as well to Beth from Sacramento. She posted a very articulate defense of Biling on our blog after we slagged on her last week. So, you know, there might be some merit to Biling out there, if not from us. Also, we wanted to say thanks to Pete from Rockford, Illinois. He left our one and only call on our lost line, but he wanted to talk about the guitar case from season five. We might get to that later. Yeah. I actually love that a handful of folks have actually emailed us to apologize for falling behind on the rewatch. Yeah. I mean, they're <laughs> acting as if it's actually homework. We're like, oh, we're sorry, teacher, we didn't do it this week. But, you know, really, you all get passing grades just for sticking with us during this hiatus. Don't worry about it. Finally, we'd like to take a moment to specifically thank everybody who recently gave us great feedback on the iTunes Music Store. Mahalo to Monk the Monkey, Chris Gooch, Kim RJ00, Avatar Ong, and Darka423. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for that. Now remember, every email, whether we can include it in our podcast or not, enters you to win some special prizes. We're going to be doing a drawing at the end of our rewatch for a limited edition Benjamin Linus bobblehead doll, which was a Comic-Con exclusive item from Entertainment Earth, or a copy of the Season 3 and Season 4 albums from The Other's Lost Band, and that's the great band based in Massachusetts that writes a song based on every episode of Lost. We're also happy to announce yet another set of prizes. Send an email during our rewatch, and you can also win a copy of Nikki Stafford's book, Finding Lost. This is the absolute latest Season 5 edition, hot off the presses. Mm-hmm. Nikki has been a friend and supporter of the transmission for years. Absolutely, and I'm happy to have contributed several photographs to her books, and this fourth edition has over 200 pages of lost goodness, including a comprehensive episode guide, an analysis of mythology and literary references, and much more. Nikki also writes a great Lost blog, and she's actually doing her own Lost rewatch, coincidentally covering the same set of episodes we just did. We'll put a link to her blog, Nick at Night, in the show notes for this show. We'd like to thank Nikki for providing her book for her hiatus giveaways. Now, looking ahead next week, we're going to share another special treat, audio from the first Masterclass on Lost from the Hawaii International Film Festival. The topic was producing and directing a hit show, and the conversation featured co-executive producer Gene Higgins and Honolulu Film Office Commissioner Valea Constantino. Then the following week, for our next scheduled rewatch podcast, we will cover Season 3, Episodes 13, 14, and 15. That's The Man from Tallahassee for Locke, Expose for Nikki and Paolo, and Left Behind for Kate. So as you enjoy the first of three Masterclass Lost Conversations, please remember to pop in those DVDs as soon as you can, and then send your feedback for us to include in the November 6th, or actually November 8th show. You can send your thoughts via email to lost at whatyup.com, post it on the blog at whatyup.com slash lost, or call the Lost Line at 815-310-0808. Coming up in about three minutes, the forward cabin. But first, paving the way, here's a little musical interlude. This is a song by the Others Lost Band. It's based on one of the episodes we just discussed, Trisha Tanaka is Dead, and the song is Roger Workman. Everything was fine until he won the lottery. But one day came a meteor, just not as dead and gone. It wasn't for the love 
was Roger Workman by The Others Lost Band. Based on the 10th episode of season 3, Trisha Tanaka is dead. You can find out more about the band, hear more of their great music, read about them over at myspace.com slash The Others Lost Band. Now we wanted to let you know that The Others Lost Band is coming to Boston on Friday, November 13th. They're going to be performing at the New England Fan Experience. Now the New England Fan Experience is a three-day sci-fi pop culture event and this year's guests include Leonard Nemo. Moy, James Hong, John Delancey, and many, many more. But if you want to hear the Others Lost Band, that's the place to be November 13th in Boston. Now it's spoiler time. That's right. If you don't want to know, this is your last chance to turn me off now. We have three weeks of filming to catch up on in this podcast, so take a deep breath. The first shoot was at Waipahu High School. That's here in central Oahu. They were using the gymnasium there. It was an interesting scene off-island, certainly in the relative present. There was a a girls basketball team. They had kids in the stands with backpacks and students basically and there were two actors there Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson. Yes, Ben and Locke off island in a gymnasium scene. Now Terry O'Quinn was wearing slacks and a dark purple plaid collared shirt looking quite serious. Uh, Michael Emerson was wearing khaki pants and a dark sweater vest over a long sleeved light blue dress shirt. He had very bookish glasses on and kind of thick hair dark colored hair. A little unusual for him so I don't know what the scene was involving, but we did learn from uh, Michael Osiello at uh, Entertainment Weekly that the title of that episode that was being filmed, 604, was The Substitute. Mm. So we weren't sure what that meant, but since we're in a school environment, and specifically by the way they were dressed, it sounds like either Ben or Locke has a job as a substitute teacher. Cool. I think that's a fair conclusion. Now, the next shoot, also pretty much in central Oahu, was in the neighborhood of Waikele. That's uh, just down the hill from us. And they were using the exact 
exact same street where they filmed Nadia's house a few mm-hmm. seasons back, you know, where Locke was doing an inspection. And it was a Locke scene, but they were not using Nadia's house. This was not a Nadia scene, but they were using basically that suburban look. And it was a pretty complex uh, shot with neighbors and kids on bikes and people in the neighborhood, you know, getting out of their cars. There was a mail carrier delivering the mail. And basically the scenario was Locke in a blue van, a blue Chevy van with like a wheelchair ramp in it. He drives up in a hurry over to what is Helen's house. He goes to see Helen there. Now, they were, you know, very protective of the shot, but the description of the scene uh, that I heard was basically he tries to see Helen, but the conversation does not go well, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. for poor Locke and Helen. And uh, at the end of the scene, he falls out of his wheelchair just as the sprinklers go off in her lawn and he gets wet. And yeah, I'm sorry to say, uh, even though we are happy to see Locke coming back, and it is old Locke in quote marks, he's not exactly happy and triumphant lock now the very next shoot was very interesting now as you may know i spend a significant amount of time following lost around the island mm-hmm. much to my wife's chagrin sometimes and nearly killing myself and i'll get to that too but sometimes i just luck out and lost comes to me so this shoot they came right across the street from my office i had to drive through trailers to get to my parking garage. They were at the Gentry Pacific Design Center in Evil A. They were using a loading zone there, and uh, there was a truck parked there with the word box in red on the door. So yes, this was a box company scene, and there were two other cars. There was the blue van I just mentioned, so uh, Locke's blue uh, wheelchair ramp van, and a yellow Hummer. Who drives a yellow Hummer? Hurley. Absolutely. So it was a scene with Locke and Hurley. What we see is Locke leaving the building in his wheelchair with a box on his lap containing files and a stapler. And basically, it looks like he's no longer working for the box company. Mm -hmm. But when he gets to his car, he sees that this obnoxious yellow Hummer is blocking his door. He gets mad. He starts yelling. He actually throws something when Hurley walks up to him. And he they have a conversation, a very intense conversation. And the last thing Hurley does is he reaches into his pocket, pulls out his uh, checkbook, and yeah. writes Locke a check on the spot. Wow. So things, again, don't look like they're going very well for Locke, but in this scene, you know, Hurley, who owns the box company, mm-hmm. seems to be doing the right thing, and it was great to see Jorge Garcia. He looked pretty hot, though, having to wear a suit jacket uh, in yeah. the hot sun in a loading dock right across the street from my office, so quite a thrill. Now, moving on to next, last week, actually, they were in Manoa Valley. They were using a house there, and uh, I happened to actually be stuck in traffic behind Jack's brown ford bronco so just trailing that truck uh took me to a small house in a little uh kind of cul-de-sac actually kind of a a dead-end street in manoa valley and basically the scene was all inside the house but i can tell you that he was visiting with his mother so that was for uh, episode five now episode four as i just discussed was a lock centric episode episode five is a jack centric episode um the next shoot was at central intermediate school this Mm -hmm. is if you may or may not know very close to downtown town honolulu it's right across the street from st andrew's priory which was used for several other right. scenes like uh oxford oxford uh, charlie's church even mr echo's church but central media is across the street from that it's actually across the street from dog the bounty hunter as well oh, and in yeah, fact one of the right. crew members went to go visit dog and his crew happened to be in town uh, but in any case it was another jack scene most of the major filming happened inside they took they used a, an auditorium now central media intermediate school is a historic building it's on the mm-hmm. national registrar of historic 
historic places. They had to black out the windows, get the air conditioning cranking, and make it a, a, a dark concert scene inside. They had students uh, with instruments. They had judges, so there were people judging the scene, and a, a significant amount of the conversation, at least that I heard on walkie-talkie conversations, were you know at a piano. There was a piano player, and as we know, piano players have factored in the past yep. in Lost, but Jack is in that scene as well. Um, and another actor present on the set, well, actually, I should say, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were also there. Oh, I actually cool. saw them walking into the building. Now, they were here. This was the same day as, or the day before, the Hawaii International Film Festival. Oh, yeah. But the other actor on the scene with Jack at this concert was Hiroyuki Sonata, who is a, I guess you would say, Jen, a handsome Asian fellow. Oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> um, and we've, we've, we've known that he's been casted in, cast in the show. He's a well-known Japanese actor, but now he's on Lost. Mm-hmm. His character's name was Dogen. You can look up, you know, basically the casting calls and what he described as. So the interesting thing is Dogen, or Hiroyuki's character, is supposed to be an other on the island. So now we see a new other on the island who is also interacting with Jack in this alternative post-non-crash Los Angeles. Mm. So that's kind of significant. Now, um, the interesting or the fantastic part of this scene is that they waited until after nightfall to film an exterior scene. They put... uh, uh, bike racks and benches out on the lawn of Central Intermediate School. They had Jack's Bronco was there once again becoming an icon. Absolutely. But basically I look forward to seeing the, these shots in Lost because the the front of Central Intermediate School, like I said, it's a historic building. It mm-hmm. has this facade, very impressive, very, I don't know, gothic. I don't know what you would describe it with big white pillars and very old looking. Uh-huh. Um, clearly it's going to look like Williams Conservatory, you know, this, yeah. this mysterious uh, school or concert hall, but it's just a beautiful building and they, and even, I think it was Carlton Cuse posted on Twitter about how magical the scene was, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Now, our next shoot, you know, speaking of um, nearly killing yourself when you go out to watch Lost Film. You probably shouldn't say you're about to kill yourself if you want me to keep, let you keep <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm just I'm just exaggerating. Nothing happened at all. The next shoot was out at Makapu'u Point, um, a beautiful stretch of coastline out of the Kaivi Coast. Now, um, you may know it as where the fake Others Village was. Mm-hmm. You may also know it as where uh, Dave and Hurley have their conversation before Dave leaps off and almost convinces Hurley to kill himself. But anyway, they use that exact same hike, a beautiful uh, area for another scene and what they had done and I really got to hand it to the carpenters they had to hike up that cliffside to build a new set and they built just a couple of walls of it very distinctive very familiar to us kind of temple like walls but it was a very small square thing and it was only when it became clear that the title of this Jack centric episode was The Lighthouse was that clearly based on its positioning on the edge of a cliff at Makapu'u Point which is also Mm. known as the Lighthouse Trail that the station that we're going to meet in this Jack episode is a lighthouse. So it was a scene that they've, filmed way up there on the cliff and I was able to visit while they were building it. I got to climb sort of around the backside of the cliff to take some pictures of it and you can find it on my blog or on the Flickr site. Um, And no, there was no danger involved on that cliff at all. Uh But in any case, it was a very impressive, beautiful shot that they were clearly setting up for. Um, Matthew Fox obviously was there. Jorge Garcia was there. They both go to this lighthouse and they were there to meet Jacob. 
So that we're not done with Jacob at all, or at least they feel that there's some information involving Jacob at the lighthouse. But from the central intermediate facade to this cliffside at Makapu'u Point, if there's, there's, I mean, I remember watching season one, season two, you know, so much of Hawaii is so beautiful on the show. And when they say that season six is going to be more like season one, I hope that that means that we're going to see some fantastic imagery. So look forward to that. The next shoot, this just a couple of days ago, was at Chaminade University. That's in uh, Kaimuki on Wailai Avenue, Um, a private school up there. Uh, A lot of people saw it. Everybody was tweeting about it. Nobody really knew what was going on, but the scene was pretty simple. Matthew Fox, in his Bronco, drives up and runs into the building. Now, they put a sign on the building, so it wasn't Chaminade University. It was a place called St. Mary's Academy. But the question is, why was he there and who was he there to visit? And a little, little birdie tells me that that scene may have involved if not um, our friend Hiroyuki Sonata um, it actually describing who was there it could have been him but I believe it was Miles oh. yes our friend from the freighter I certainly hope and this is totally unconfirmed um, just based on my interpretation of someone who I knew who went to go check it out uh, couldn't really identify the person but I think it was Miles based on the description and I think that would be pretty fantastic yeah it would be now I think the last shoot I have to tell you about was was just on Friday. They were back in Kahala. That's, of course, the slightly upper-class neighborhood here in Honolulu. They've mm-hmm. used a number of houses there. Hurley's Mansion is there, etc., etc. But they were actually using a slightly more modest home, and specifically the scene is as follows. Once again, a nice suburban scene with green lawns and little houses. There were a, a school bus arriving with kids climbing off or getting on the bus. They're about eight years old, so it's kind of young kids. But a taxi cab was there from Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so someone may be arriving directly from the airport. And this scene was for Saeed. So Naveen oh. Andrews arrives. Now, he arrives in this neighborhood. He has in his hands a bouquet of flowers. He walks up to a door, and who answers but the love of his life? Nadia. So we are going to see Nadia again and Saeed and unlike Locke and Helen, it looked like things are in slightly better shape for this couple here in post-no-crash Los Angeles. Now, there were a couple of things that uh, visiting fans got to see but they couldn't necessarily explain, so I'll just put it out to you. Specifically, they saw Saeed putting a young girl on on the school bus. It's basically sending off a kid to school. But He said, or my friend said, it doesn't look like it was his kid or Nadia's kid because it was a little blonde girl in a pink dress. But nonetheless, it looks like there's some kind of interaction between these children who would otherwise be background characters and Saeed. So that's interesting. You know, we're seeing kids. You know, we had the youth concert, the concert Matthew Fox was on. So Mm -hmm. young people are certainly playing a part in this new universe that we're experiencing. But I'd be curious what Saeed's role is. Is maybe a Saeed a teacher? I mean, we knew that he joined that humanitarian group. Or Again, this is all complete and total guessing. Now, the final element of this scene, the most tantalizing element of this scene, in my view, is not just that uh, Nadia was there. But they specifically filmed a mysterious character in a white uh, Infinity or Lexus, I think, driving past the house, looking at the house, and then speeding off quickly. And they filmed this shot many, many times to basically show someone was doing surveillance on Nadia's home, or Saeed and Nadia's home. Mm -hmm. It could be the two of them. Who knows? Um, But the character that was in the scene was described as Middle Eastern yeah. and the the people on the walkie-talkies described either someone named Omar or 
Omer. Omer. Uh-huh. Now, the Omar could be anybody. I guess there was an Omar on the freighter, so that'd be kind of right. interesting. But if you think about Middle Eastern and a guy named Omer, do you know an Omer? No. The, you've seen him on Lost, but you might have forgotten him. Saeed had a brother. And really? his brother's name was Omer. Yes, the boy that uh, refused to kill the chicken, I think, oh, that Saeed right. helped. Now, we never heard or saw anything of Saeed's brother again, I don't think. No, we didn't. But suddenly there is a character that could be Omer or Omar um, doing surveillance on Saeed and or Nadia in California. Very interesting. So, very interesting. So there you go. Three weeks of filming here on the island. I do want to send thanks to the very observant and very lucky many visiting fans who actually got to observe a lot of this filming and report back. Mahalo to Keith, and we met Keith actually yeah, hey Keith. at the International Film Festival event. Brooke, Nana, and Vicky. So very helpful to have very observant friends. So that's it for the forward cabin. So that means that's it for this episode of the transmission. Now remember, your homework is to watch season three, episode 13, 14, and 15. And please get your feedback to us by my birthday, Friday, November <laughs> 6th. Remember, this show is powered by you. So we really would love it if you. You'd send us an email, comment on the blog, call the Lost Line, post a note on iTunes, and even tweet us on Twitter. We love hearing from you. Email us at lost at hawaiiup.com. Comment on the blog at hawaiiup.com slash lost. Call the Lost Line at 815-310-0808. Or find us on Twitter at Hawaii for Ryan and at Mrs. Hawaii for me. We're also on Facebook. Yep, on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Ozawa for me. And for Jen, it's Jen Ozawa. Right. So, yeah, we'd love to connect with you in any way we can. Now, once again, next week, we're going to continue our Hawaii International Film Festival series with audio from the first of three master classes focused on various aspects of Lost. So, master class number one next week will be producing and directing a hit show. Stay tuned for that. Then, the week after that, our Lost season three review resumes. Absolutely. Talk to you then, folks. Enjoy. Stay lost. Stay lost. Aloha. This podcast is a proud member of the Lost Podcasting Network. Get all your favorite Lost podcasts in one feed at lostcasts.blogspot.com.